Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode. Alex, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Uh, just hanging out here um, with my daughter, Ava, on a beautiful day. It's like 70 degrees. Ava is like our third friend. co-host, basically. I love, She's here. I love when Ava makes sure it's interjects input whenever. whenever <laughs> what about yourself? How are you doing? Uh, my shoulder hurts a lot. I've no idea why. I think it's because I'm getting old. But, you know, it's... You're lifting, uh, getting swole. I, I'm not, I'm not, that's a problem. And that's like the most common CrossFit injury. <laughs> I'm not like, even doing CrossFit. He's doing a well, muscle you up. Should. You should. I guess so. Then, you, then you'll have an excuse for the shoulder injury. People are like, why are you hurt? You'll be like, I do CrossFit. Yeah, I, I, I guess <laughs> I should. People are calling it now because I guess the CEO got fired for being like, oh, like, yeah, yeah there were, he had some racist tweets going oh. out. Like, back in like, it's never a good idea if you run a business. Yeah. <laughs> to be a racist in yeah like they're <laughs> just in general i don't know they're- our guest today is dropping some wisdom uh early on off for us <laughs> and i love it um so today we're talking about one type of job transition that will uh could happen to some people which is from private academia and our our guest is benjamin hansen uh he is the we minor professor of economics at the university of oregon he's an applied microeconomist whose research focuses on crime health and other topics in labor and public economics. He's also the director of graduate studies. So people who are looking into getting into the PhD program, um, Ben would be a great person to know and contact. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Awesome. Tell us a, a little bit of a fun fact about yourself so people can get to know you better. Yeah. So uh, I guess in a previous life as, as an undergraduate, I was the lead singer and guitarist for a couple different punk rock bands. What? Yes. I did not know that. That's so cool. Okay. Were, there, were there any amazing names? Uh, the last band I was in was called Mullets and Bullets. <laughs> I would go see every, I'd buy the album. That the is hilarious. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if I tilt this over here, you can even see a couple guitars hanging on. Oh, yeah. That is phenomenal. Do you still sing? Uh, in my car. And are you, do you, like, what kind of, do you have like the, the Blink-182 voice or you have a different kind of voice? I would say somewhere between a Tom DeLong like Blink-182, and a Billy Joe. Like, okay. you know, I, I, I carry a tune, a tune a little bit better than Tom. Okay. <laughs> okay. Tom DeLong amazes me, by the way. Just his, okay. he basically got pushed forward that whole UFO agenda. Oh, yeah. If you don't know about no, Tom DeLong un- and aliens, you should Google it. Oh, no. The unidentified show on History Channel has been awesome. My it's wife phenomenal. keeps giving me crap about it, but like whenever it's on, like I'm like down there watching unidentified and I'm like, see, aliens are real. <laughs> yes, I love it. Yeah. Um, all right. So I think this is a great place to uh, to pause and sort of shift gears a little bit. And uh, we like to begin before we sort of get into the topic of the day, just hearing a little bit about some project you want to plug or research you're working on. So Ben, if you would mind sharing with us, you know, just a minute or two about something yeah. you're excited about. Yeah. So um, right now I'm just pushing a project towards the finish line with a, a couple of great co-authors, uh, Aaron Chalfin, uh, Emily Weisburst, and Morgan Williams. We're working on a project that investigates the effect that police uh, employment has or like uh, police staffing levels on, um, on homicides. And this is a question people have looked at before, but we're the first one that has separated it out by black and white homicides. 
So we're seeing when there's more police or fewer police, does that how does that affect uh, race-specific homicide? Uh, so we're using the supplemental homicide report data. Uh, we have are using some data that are fairly new to also see what happens to police shootings. Um, so a lot of this is combining together approaches that people have been used before and data sets that are out there, but disaggregating to some outcomes that I think are super important right now for policy. You know, and so the, is, is the race segregation happening at the homicide or the police officer race? So we're it's happening at the homicide level. So we don't know. If this is, you know, you know, the hiring of black police or white police, this is just if there's more or fewer police, what is happening to white and black homicide victimization rates? And we all split it out by uh, by gender and by age as well. Um, and generally, we find when there's more police, uh, there's fewer black homicides and there's fewer white homicides. Um, we find that there aren't really large effects on clearance rates, suggesting this is probably more driven by uh, a deterrence effect of more police being around. Um, but we do find that there are large increases in low-level arrests for misdemeanor crimes. So imagine like mm-hmm. marijuana possession, you know, drunken public, disorderly conduct, that sort of things. Uh, and that these increases in low-level arrests are much larger for uh, young black males than they are for young mm-hmm. white males. I see. Wow, that sounds a really interesting. B, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of questions about, yeah, about all might, of that. <laughs> it might turn out that everybody hates us because you know. Th- we, there is some evidence here that the the when more police are hired that this um that minority communities right uh, do experience over policing uh mm-hmm. you know disproportionately that they're more likely to be arrested for these low level crimes but it's also true if you were to just massively reduce the number of police you know ceteris paribus yeah. that would result uh likely in an increase in homicides and um and that young black men would bear the brunt of that too yeah yeah it sounds like it's a complicated set of facts, right? As true stuff normally right. is, right? Rather than a simple one side or the other. So that that's really interesting. I obviously have a lot more questions, but unfortunately, or fortunately, this is not a research podcast. Shout out, shout out to Probable Causation. I know Jen Jen has her her podcast more focused on, on research and papers, and so that's great. But um, uh, this is a great place to to pause and kind of transition to our our topic of the day. So Ben, let's let's start at the beginning, and maybe can you tell us a bit about your career path at the end of graduate school, or or maybe even before, like what made you go to grad school, and then after that yeah. you were like, you know, where where did so, life take you? Yeah, sure. So when I was an undergraduate uh, studying economics, uh, I had a professor that I really liked and connected with. And oddly enough, he, he was actually kind of a part-time adjunct professor. Yeah, he worked full, full-time at LECG, a consulting company, and then taught uh, intermediate micro every once in a while, just because he felt like it both helped his public speaking and he just liked being in the classroom. Um, so he was there teaching and, and, you know, I was taking some economics classes, but at the time I was, I think, majoring in econ and planning to go to law school. And um, during one lecture, he, he was trying to convince everybody why he got a PhD. And um, he said it was the best choice he made because it let him delay growing up. And I was like, oh, <laughs> tell me about that. Up? That sounds delightful. He's like, well, I got to like delay making a choice of what I wanted to do with my life. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that, that doesn't sound like that much of a hard sell, you know? Mm-hmm. He's like, no, he's like, what I mean by that is name something you're interested in. Pick it, whatever you're interested in. He's like, I guarantee you there's an economist out there that studies it. 
And so whatever you're passionate about, this is a really great way for you to develop a tool set to study questions that you think are really interesting. Um, And so, uh, you know, this was, of course, a point in my life where I'm like, I think uh, I'm like a junior in college and trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And I was like, well, delaying making that choice of pigeonholing myself into a career does sound a bit appealing. Right. But then having the flexibility to study whatever I'm interested in that sounds great. And then I saw, you know, look, there are legitimate private sector jobs that you can get um, working for these, working working for like litigation consulting companies and other companies in addition to being in academia. So that for me was, uh, you know, convinced me that this was worth investing, you know, the next, you know, uh, five years of my life in doing so. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's uh, super interesting. And, and do you still keep in contact with that professor? Yeah, yeah, he follows me on Instagram. I follow him. Uh, we're all <laughs> also Strava buddies, you know. Like, okay, okay. Shout out to Strava, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, uh, he's Stephen Waters. He's a much better biker than I am. You know, he puts my like, uh, he puts my times to shame. So, <laughs> um, and remind me, where did you go to undergrad? Uh, I went to BYU. BYU. Okay, so yeah. you finished college. You applied to grad school. You get into a couple of grad schools, and where do you go? Uh, I went to UCSB. UCSB. Okay. Oh, I love UCSB. That's great. Um, And then you do the program there and then you're hitting the job market time. And what's, what's your perception that at around that time, okay, I want to get any job or et cetera. Well, I kind of made like an order length riff ordered, you know, ranked list of like the types of jobs I wanted. And it was kind of like, all right, first place I want to go was like an R1 research university, you know, and coming out of a place like UCSB, I knew that like Harvard was, you know, you know, never going to hire me, you know, or if they were going to, I was going to have to take many like stepping stones to get there. And there's people who have, so I'm not saying it's impossible. Right. 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 Um, uh, But a boy can dream. Yeah. yeah. Or a girl can dream. And you can, you can dream and work your butt off and make it happen because nobody's going to make it happen for you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but I want to be in an R1 research university or, you know, next on the list, I wanted to be at, um, you know, probably like a research think tank type job, uh, like a Mathematica, RAND, something like that. Uh, or uh, I wanted to go to like a litigation consulting company, maybe after that, like, uh, just because even though, you know, it'd be long hours of work and you yeah, <laughs> there's the money, there's the money, right? Compensating and, differential. Yeah, yes. there you go. Um, <laughs> Well, and, and I have some interesting things to say about those jobs and why I actually found a lot of their questions more interesting than I thought it would. Okay. But, but given I was trained in labor economics, it wasn't the labor economics questions that were even interesting. Like their mm. litigation research is actually kind of boring. Um, mm. Yeah. And That's boring and also depressing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Well, half of what they get paid to do is to pre-approve layoff plans by firms. Oh yeah. That doesn't so a sound firm great. will come to you and say, we're going to lay off 50,000 people. Make sure we aren't racist. And oh. here, here's our data, run the regressions, make sure when you control for experience and whatever kind of merit right. system we track internally that, you know, race and gender stuff doesn't show up in our regression. And yeah, yeah. So that's that, a tough, that's, that's a tough job. It, it, well, I mean, it's probably important for firms to be self-auditing too. So I'm not saying that's, that true. that's a good just, point, but it, it's a weird thing to think that you're going to enrich yourself on other people's like suffering. And I didn't know that I could do that, mm-hmm. but anyways, um, 
so litigation consulting jobs. And mm -hmm. then after that was kind of like the like teaching focus jobs where you just teach like four, four, five, five teaching load and focus on teaching. And that was, it was a job I, I would have liked. I actually, I liked teaching then. I like teaching now. Um, but it's not something I wanted to do full time. You know, so it was like a, a motivating thought the whole time. Was it this original sort of impetus to go to grad school? Like I want to be able to choose my own questions. Mm. And so yeah. like each, those are sort of ranked by like how much you have like autonomy in question choice or almost. Yep. Okay. Yep. So you went on the market and in the end, did you have a plethora of choices or well, the market was invisible? Well, the market I went on was in, so this was in 2009, like, or sorry, sorry, fall of 2008 is when I go on the market. So this is like right when the financial crisis hits. Mm. And so I think this is the most recent time that there was like, I think an unexpectedly bad and different job market right. than there was in previous years. Mm. And, you know, I, and you get out there and you interview for jobs and you, you, and people will say, yeah, this is a tough market this year. And everyone at the dinner table will tell you how their market was the toughest, you know, mm. but this was like, at least the first market that I saw, and I think I've ever seen, where the AEA specifically was actually noting which jobs were canceled. Oh, wow. Okay. You go down the list of academic jobs, and there was just like red X's next to all the jobs. Wow. That meant the position had been canceled. And so I think probably during that fall, 30 to 40% of the academic jobs got canceled. Wow. And that's, and that's on like the extensive margin. There was also intensive margin effects that like jobs previously at a university where they might be, maybe they were going to have two or three positions, all of a sudden it went down to one. Mm -hmm. So there, there was a big contraction in academic jobs that was available in that year. Okay. Um, there was also a big expansion in, uh, in government jobs and in private sector jobs and in government contracting jobs. Uh, it, partly related to uh, big fiscal uh, stimulus uh, things that we're going through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you landed which job? Uh, so I ended up at Impact Inter International, okay. which uh, is a research consulting firm in DC. Mm -hmm. And this, through this process, I actually learned that there's different types of think tanks. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's like the Rand Corporation, which is a nonprofit, but it, it actually originally kind of developed as an organization that did think tank work for the army, mm -hmm. um, but they're, they're nonprofit. Uh, there's, uh, but then there's also other nonprofits like the urban Institute, uh, mm -hmm. or like public policy Institute of California that are nonprofits that are, um, mostly interested in policy work. They might put out white papers, you know, they're trying mm -hmm. and like the urban Institute is trying to put out stuff. That's like super responsive to the yeah, question. I love they, their work. Mm -hmm. You know, same, same thing like Brookings, right. Versus like, an Impact International, a Mathematica, a CNA Corp, um, you know, Apt Associates, those were all for-profit research firms. Mm. So they mm. actually, like, the company has an owner or a set of owners, right. and they're, they're trying to make profit. But what they do is they respond to requests for proposals that the government puts out. Mm -hmm. And then they, you know, bid on these contracts and they bid on the right. contract, sometimes partnering up with other small businesses, sometimes they'll partner with each other and then they get the, then they get the projects and then they do the research. Right. right. And, mm -hmm. um, takes them anywhere from, you know, a couple months to five years to deliver the research to right. the, their government partner. Which I think it's like the, the, well, at least when I was in the market, I saw it as like the positive thing in the sense that 
you're doing work that is actually going to be used by the like, agencies that are like requesting it at least. And that felt yeah. really important. And as opposed to me writing a paper that maybe no one will read. So and maybe yeah. three people. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like the request for the proposal tells you that the question is important and they care about it. Right. So then you might wonder, well, how do I get to be creative in my, like my research or something like that? And there the creativity really uh, can arise in how you answer the question. Mm, that's right? a really good point. And, and so it doesn't mean like if you're like a person that kind of likes the creative parts of like solving problems that's inherently involved in research that you won't get to be creative. Mm-hmm. No, you're, you're going to have to think creatively about, you know, especially as you rise up in an organization, you become a manager, you might think, well, what set of organizations would be competitive for this? You know, mm-hmm. might mm-hmm. not just be you, how do you bring your team together? How do you answer it? You know? And, yeah. um, and so I think that there still is a lot to be said, even when you've said, this is the question, right. how you answer it can vary. Yeah, there, there was a lot I liked about the job in terms of real world policy analysis. I got to meet with like, you know, the, you know, secretary of labor and mm-hmm. uh, wow. to, yeah, we interacted with like uh, some of the councils of economic advisors, like mm-hmm. Alex Moss and Jesse Rothstein were coming up with these different evaluations that they wanted us mm-hmm. to do that we ended up winning some contracts for. So it was, uh, it, it was a it was a really good experience in a, in a lot of ways, both for me understanding how research is done in the, in mm-hmm. like in the governmental world and mm-hmm. just thinking about research. There's eventually a shift in which you're like, okay, I'm going to go in the market again and, yeah. and, and try something else. And so maybe talk us about made that decision. And then what, yeah. what did you do to transition? So I talked to my advisor about it and uh, before I left Peter Kuhn and he said, look, the longer you're going to be out, the less they're going to treat you like a new incoming assistant professor. And they're just going to expect you to have a lot more publications, Mm -hmm. you know, been out five or six years, they're going to expect you to be an associate professor. Mm. If you've only been out one year or two years, maybe they'll just say, oh, we'll just pretend this was a postdoc or we'll treat it as if you're at a postdoc. And that's kind of what I thought of this as is like, look, this could be my future career. I also could just treat this as like a well-paid postdoc in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But to that end, I, I, so I worked kind of evenings working on uh, trying to get my dissertation and other projects out there and submitted a bunch of stuff that spring as I was finishing my dissertation. Mm. And, I, and I connected with people that I had actually met on the job market, even though I didn't get the job. Mm. So like at mm. UC Denver, I didn't get hired. Instead, they ha- hired Hani Mansoor who's like oh. completely awesome. So I don't blame yeah. him. You know? <laughs> yeah, I was say, that turned out to be yeah. a great hire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I knew Honey from grad school too. And okay. like, he, he, was, he was doing great stuff. He totally deserved to get the job, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but Dan Reese and I connected at dinner just about researching questions. So um, I reached out to him afterwards and he thought, well, who's this like gutsy, you know, PhD <laughs> just telling me about research, you know? He yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. Yeah, that sounds fun. So me and Dan got started on some projects and he ended up roping me in on some stuff with Oh wow, uh, okay. Maybe, uh, and so that that helped me to stay connected to some academic circles and and to start to develop and craft new relationships mm-hmm. and continue that informal networking process that's kind of a part of academia. Well, that's good to know that yeah. you thought about this as you were doing it and you put a lot of effort into it, right? Um yeah. I think 
I think sometimes people tend to think, oh, when people switch jobs or this, like maybe it's something like opportunity fell into their lap, but you were out there like moving and shaking and doing a lot of work to make this. Yeah. Well, and it was something I knew I kind of had a limited time window if I was going to make this transition to really make it happen that I gave myself like two years, maybe three for it to happen. And at the time I even had what I was choosing between different firms in DC, I could have gone to apt associates. I could have gone to CNA corp. I ended up going to impact, even though they were kind of the smallest and least well-known mm. because they had the, some contracts to do a bunch of independent research on the UI system. Oh, wow. and, and they had some contracts to do some rate, some work on this growing, growing America through entrepreneurship program. And so I thought, okay, this place is newer. It's more of a startup. So you have a lot more control of what projects you get put on mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. like going to an apt associates or a Mathematica everything is kind of already siloed off. And so you have very little control of what projects you get put on. You just kind of get a boss or manager that's directly over you and kind of like mentors you as you just kind of progress out. Mm-hmm. Two, two quick questions. So how long yeah. were you in impact until you moved? Uh, so I, I started impact in July and I was at Oregon by the next July. So, okay. so, so that fall you decided to go in the market basically. Yes. Okay. So, wow. And part of it was like, I already, I had submitted some papers and I got some R&Rs over the summer. So okay. that's where I was working hard and I had a bit of luck. Okay. Right. And I was like, look, these are some additional signals I didn't have on the first time in the market. So I right. think that's going to help me. Um, and in the, in the context, what in your context of your personal life, did you have a family already by then or you yes. were solo? Okay. So I had a family, so I was married and we had, uh, two kids, one of which had been born in June of 2009, right before we moved out to DC. Oh, wow. But our, okay. our kids were pretty young. So like, we weren't going to be like pegged, pegged down. Right. But I, I did like my job right. and it was a full-time job. So I couldn't do like your typical search. So I didn't apply to, I think the first time I was on the market, I applied to 140 jobs or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this time I was on the market, I applied to, I think 10. Right. And, and so did how much, I'm just trying to, to put up, to paint a picture here, how much yeah. of the time not spent at, at work stuff did you have to do extra? Like, did you have to work like, a lot after work or in the weekends or all of that you were able to do it within the work time? No, I did stuff, you know, on the nights. I did some stuff on weekends, you okay. know. I was able to do some stuff during work time because they had given me like I think 20% of my time during the first year I could use for my own research. So I basically had one day a week, you know, that I could carve off that I didn't have to like mm-hmm. build to projects. Uh, Cause that's part of like the research, like consulting world is that it's all, it's all about billable hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so, gotcha. so I did have a bit of time, but uh, there was definitely a lot of, you know, work in the evenings, you know, when the, when the, after the kids were asleep, there was some work on the weekends and that was both taking projects that um, that had started in grad school and making sure they were progressing, mm-hmm. and then it was also starting and starting and continuing these new projects up with uh, with people I'd met on the job market with you know specifically getting some stuff rolling with Dan Reese and Joe Sabia. Great. And one one last question, maybe to to wrap this 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 part up, which is, um, so the tips that I'm hearing are. Keep keep keeping your academic networks. If you're gonna think about transition, don't do it too late, and also be mindful that this is gonna cost you a little bit of extra time that you yeah. otherwise. Is there is there something else that that you you would? Add I, I'd to say that? start submitting stuff. Okay. Right. right? Like advice, no matter what. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 
like no guts, no glory, like send your stuff out. And cause you need some more signals than what you had before, because it's not like you're, your advisor is going to like carefully look over their letter and be like, oh crap, I accidentally wrote Ben a really bad letter. I need to write him a better one, right? And I, that's not going to happen. If anything, your advisor is going to have other students they're going to be focused on right. pushing this next year. Mm-hmm. And so for you to, you know, get back into the market, you you might need some more signals than what you had, which, you know, you have a year to have stuff under review, mm-hmm. right? That you mm-hmm. didn't have the first time. So if you are continually submitting stuff, your odds of having an R&R, if, especially if you have multiple projects getting submitted, as long as you're being really realistic mm-hmm. and not trying to send everything to, you know, QJE and getting all that to, right. to clear. Um, well, but I, honestly, you hear back from QJE really quick. So that's not, that's not <laughs> the other journals, right? Yeah. That's, that's not the costly one. The costly yeah. one would be sending stuff to, you know, a journal where it sits there for a year. Right. Uh, yeah. And your odds of getting in are really, really low. Okay. Cool. So I think being a little bit strategic, if you mm-hmm. want to have that signal, um, having like the right set of stuff that's higher potential that you are submitting high, but being honest with yourself and maybe submitting some things to, you know, more specialized field journals. Right. can help you to get more signals than you had the first time. That's that's great advice. Um, and then I just like more broadly, because now you've hired people, you've obviously made some really good hires at Oregon and you've advised yeah. students. Um, Spoiler alert, he ended up in Oregon, by the way, at the end of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> cut to the end of the movie. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but so I often hear from people that uh, like other students when I was on the market, like don't go into industry. It's a one-way door. Mm. Uh, Whereas other people say, no, you can come back and you can move around. Uh, To what extent do you think it is true that like, if you go into industry, it's, it's more of a terminal state than other positions. Yeah. I think it, it probably, it probably is. You are probably more likely to stay there. But part of that might just be endogenous to the fact that Impact was a good job. Fair. And like, we were fairly happy there. And I got in a nice place too, I think. I was living in a nice place. And heck, my first year there, they gave me like a 12% raise. Ooh, that's nice. Which like, happen at academia, <laughs> academia, they don't just come knock on your door and say, hey, your annual raise is 12%. Yeah. If, you yeah. want, if you want to get a raise like that, you either need to get an outside offer or yeah. you, maybe you get it through promotion, maybe, uh, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. and um, and so I think, and that's partly that it is a more competitive market. If you're thinking of like all these research consult- consulting firms, there's in around DC, there's RAND, there's Impact, there's APT, there's Mathematica, right? There's, uh, you know, you, you can set a, make a list of six or seven firms. And I can tell you, when we were trying to poach people that were more advanced in the industry, they were working locally mm. and it wasn't a big deal for them to change what firm they were at. Right. Right. Like they're mm. all living off the red line, you know, in Bethesda. And so <laughs> that's like, right. That's right. So driving, you know, 10 more minutes to another place, if it gets you a big raise, that's okay. And so it made the labor market a lot more competitive. Whereas, you know, there, wherever we end up in academia, there's a fair bit of monopsony power. All right. So a lot of students listen to this podcast and a lot of graduating students. Um, I have this other question, just, you know, you've had a lot of experience as an advisor. How often do people that know in sort of quotes, they want to do academia or know that they want to do industry. um, How often do you think that they're correct in ascribing their own preferences to themselves? Or how often do you think it's like, 
you know, student underselling themselves or over, I, I, don't, I don't even know if that's the right phrase. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I remember a couple of years ago, there was like an IOS student at the University of Oregon that always told me like he, he wanted to end up in industry. And now he's teaching at a liberal arts college job and he had the industry offers, mm. right? So I don't know if that's like, you know, stated preferences just are not revealed preferences, right? There's a mm-hmm. warp, there's not a wasp. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what, is that, what does that mean? There's a weak axiom of revealed preference. Oh, oh wow. I thought you were talking about the animals. I was like, that is an American idiom or something? No, no, no. no. <laughs> it's a or a micro theory. This is incredibly embarrassing. I'm editing it out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Do not. We will know. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's like people just, you know, being a little bit guarded in their own beliefs or self-doubts or, you know, imposter syndrome stuff. And I do think, look, you can have your own preferences and the market will reward different Mm -hmm. parts of yourself. And you could have a strong belief or preference you want to end up in academia. But I think there's a certain, you know, set of, you know, personal characteristics combined with what your research paper is that helps you to, to get through that academic door versus ending up in industry. Let me ask you one, one quick question. Is there something that you liked more about industry relative to academia now that you've been yeah. in both places? So industry to, well, I, I already mentioned that the like bigger annual raise thing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Fair enough. You know, so I think the fact that the labor market is legitimately a lot more competitive uh, mm-hmm. I think is something that's like pretty appealing. Um, at least being at the private in like the contract research like world, uh, the hours were definitely more nine to five there. Mm-hmm. You know, there was like a time of the year where the work followed you home, like during the proposal writing season part of things. Um, mm-hmm. Right. But not really outside of that. Yeah, academia does not feel nine to five. No, it does not feel nine to five. I, I try to no, make no, it no. as nine to five as possible, but yeah. yeah. I know everyone always like asks if you have summers off, you know, and yeah, you know, <laughs> mountain bike all day, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I know. They look at my Instagram and they're like, "Oh man, you're never working." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> I went on that ride at like six in the morning." Okay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, thank you so much for being with us. So, before uh, before we end, we love to end uh, the podcast with a recommendation of the week. This could be anything at all: quote, thought, web page. Uh, I don't know, a mountain bike trail near your house. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, ben, yeah. I'd like to share your recommendation. Love to hear it. Uh, let's see. Uh, recommendation is to watch unidentified and learn the truth about unidentified flying objects in the world. Oh, It'll make you rethink uh, the original song on the Blink-182 album, Aliens Exist. I thought it was a joke <laughs> track. Tom DeLonge, he's oh, serious. No. Yeah. Oh, no, no. He's completely serious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is this a Netflix show or what? Uh, History Channel. Oh, duh. History yeah. Channel. The Fact <laughs> Channel. <Yeah. laughs> All right, Sebastian, what do, we, what do you have today? Uh, so today I'm going to do the following recommendation. I'm going to recommend uh, that as people are, you know, work on their schedules, their usual schedule to work and, and break and whatever, I actually recommend people scheduling times to talk to people. And this is something that I've been doing for the past few years, and it's great. And that means, like, I'm going to schedule talk to my mom talk to my sister, you know, talk to a friend and so on. And the reason why I do this is because if you don't do that, what's going to happen is that people are going to randomly call you and then you're going to randomly going to answer and then you're going to have conversations in the middle of maybe your workday or afterwards. 
And that could be awesome, but at the same time, it could totally like disrupt maybe a cycle that you have. So I like to usually schedule them in, in my calendar. Um, and that way, you know, I can keep my personal relationships at the same time that I'm keeping my schedule. So that's my recommendation for the Very week. wholesome. Very wholesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Alex, what's yours? All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to do two. Um, just take oh, two, here. two for one here. Two for, two for one. Our listeners um, so are getting a deal. is uh, to use Zwift if you have a, a bike of some sort. So I like to bike, uh, but I don't live near, I live in Indianapolis. It's kind of hard for me to go to a part of the city where it would be easy for me to road bike. Um, so I bought a smart trainer and I use this online application that calls called Zwift, where I can sort of work out and do all sorts of things on my own. And, you know, like many other people, I've gained the COVID-20, but it would have been the COVID-40 <laughs> had it not been oh. for Zwift, right? I think it's, it's helpful. So are, are you on the uh, economic Strava are you on some of their groups? The real I, business I cyclists? Oh, I did not know about this list. Yeah, so it's, you can yeah, join a, the real business cyclists. You know, and you can you can link Zwift over, or you can link Strava also over to a Peloton if you Peloton instead, you know. Um, I also made another group on Strava too called the MBER for the- That is solid. For the mountain bike economist riders. Uh, I was gonna say it's like only MBR members are allowed. No, no, no. So if you have trouble getting into the NBER, just buy a mountain bike. That's yeah, buy a bike. Just yeah. buy a bike. Try to hurt yourself on it, and we will welcome you into the NBER. Oh, that's I wonderful! It. I love that. Yeah. Um, All right, and awesome. then my, oh, my second one. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. As uh, we were talking before the podcast, but we didn't record it about how awesome the Young Applied Micro Group is at Oregon. So if you are a prospective PhD student definitely check out uh, Oregon as a place. Uh, Hashtag ad. Yeah, for sure. But no, I, so I work with uh, some of the people there and I know of their work because they have similar fields yeah, as me. I agree. But there's Grant McDermott, uh, Ed Rubin, Eric Zhu, Keaton Miller. There's just so many awesome people. And also they have wonderful resources that teach you how to do econometrics and applied micro online that are freely available. So even if you don't go to Oregon, you can learn from the Oregon faculty. Amazing. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us today. If people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Uh, well, first go to my webpage, I guess, and you can see what I've been working on lately. Uh, you could go to Twitter, follow me on Ben Economics. Uh, and then if I'm at a conference, just say hi, you know, or send me an email in advance. Uh, you know, I, I've, you know, volunteered before just on Twitter or other stuff to have coffee with whoever at a conference just has a question about like research academia whatever and it's been great to to meet a lot of other people and sometimes you 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 keep in contact or sometimes it's great to just have a conversation with a stranger you know so yeah awesome great so follow follow ben uh, uh, on twitter awesome thanks for tuning in this week please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast and see you next week bye everyone bye.